our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who are afar off and to those who are near. For through him, we both have access by one spirit to the Father, Christ our cornerstone. Now, therefore, you're no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Then please turn with me to Luke 19. I'm reading from verse 28 to 44. When he had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And it came to pass when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mountain called Olivet, that he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village opposite you, where as you enter you will find a cold tide, on which no one has ever sat. Lose it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you losing it? Thus you shall say to him, because the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went their way and found it just as he had said to them. But as they were losing the colt, the owners of it said to them, Why are you losing the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of him. Then they brought him to Jesus, and they threw their own clothes on the colt, and they set Jesus on him. And as he went, many spread their clothes on the road. Then, as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if this should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Now as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes, for days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another, because you did not know the time of your visitation. Now the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and John add one detail to the triumphal entry that Luke doesn't. And I want to pick that from Matthew 21, 3 to 5 for this detail. 
and it's repeated in Mark and John. After Jesus had instructed the disciples to go into the village to fetch the colt, we read this in verse 3. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. And then verse 4, all this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet saying, tell the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the fall of a donkey. The prophet mentioned here is Zechariah, and these words are found in Zechariah 9.9, and I want you to hold that thought, I'll come back to it in a while. I'm starting my message in Ephesians 2 from Luke 19.41 and 42. Now as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Jesus is entering Jerusalem, and he's weeping because of the ignorance he sees in those people, that he perceives that city doesn't know exactly what is going on. And this is significant, this ignorance is significant because of the place that Jerusalem has with God. In 2 Chronicles 6, 3 to 6, this is what we read about Jerusalem. It's Solomon speaking after the completion of the work of the temple. Then the king turned around and blessed the whole assembly of Israel, while all the assembly of Israel was standing. And he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, who has fulfilled with his hands what he spoke with his mouth to my father David, saying, Since the day that I brought my people out of the land of Egypt, I have chosen no city from any tribe of Israel in which to build a house, that my name might be there. Nor did I choose any man to be a ruler over my people Israel. Yet I have chosen Jerusalem, that my name may be there, and I have chosen David to be over my people, Israel. Solomon, the king, is declaring the privileged position that Jerusalem had with God. God chose his name to be in Jerusalem and nowhere else. Psalm 132, 13-14 also declares, For the Lord has chosen Zion, that's Jerusalem. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. And now Jesus is approaching Jerusalem on this Palm Sunday with Friday in mind, Good Friday. The same Jerusalem will find Jesus rejected and crucified because they do not know the things that make for their peace. The NIV version of Luke 19.42 says this, <clears throat> If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace. And what's remarkable for me is that the Prince of Peace was riding into town that day, on that Palm Sunday, today. And his disciples in Luke 19.38 are proclaiming, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. 
And all the Pharisees could do was to ask him to rebuke his disciples for saying the truth. Today is Palm Sunday. Ephesians 2, 14 to 15 that we've read says this. For he, that is Jesus, he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. So figuratively, through this passage in Ephesians, I do believe the Prince of Peace has made his entry into our midst this morning, this Palm Sunday. But what is our response to him? What is your response to the Prince of Peace this morning? Let's assume he was coming down the donkey over there. And you're looking at him. And the disciples are saying, blessed be the one who's bringing peace. What is your response to him? In John 12, 19, John 12 is a passage in John that uh, relates to the uh, triumphal entry. The Pharisees at the end of Jesus coming in say this among themselves. You see that you are accomplishing nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Their status quo was totally threatened by Jesus' presence. His spiritual authority over them was being manifested. And they were desperate, they were anxious, and they were flustered. To put it another way, the Prince of Peace had checked in. And amazingly and paradoxically, their response resulted in their having no peace at all. This morning, Ephesians 2, 14 and 15 is telling us that Jesus is our peace. Jesus is your peace. What is your response to him? If you've rejected him, like the Pharisees, maybe you once were a believer and you walked away, the proclamation that Jesus is your peace could very likely at this moment be causing you turmoil and anxiety because the truth is facing you. If you're not a believer in Jesus, the wall of separation that results in enmity with Christ, and which wall, incidentally, was constructed by the devil himself, is currently probably like the Pharisees wanting you to ask Jesus to rebuke me for proclaiming that Jesus is peace. Maybe you're living in sin. Sin's sole purpose is to create enmity between you and God. And this proclamation that Jesus is the Prince of Peace could be reminding you with great discomfort that you're not right with God. In all these instances, there'll be no peace for you when you're in the presence of the Prince of Peace as we are this morning. And I think the reason the Bible passages refer to his entry into Jerusalem as a triumphal entry is because the forces of darkness had tried all they could 
to stop Jesus from getting into Jerusalem because it would mean their defeat. And you recall in many different parts in the Gospels before that, there are places where the crowds would pick up stones wanting to destroy Jesus, but he slipped away. They were trying to stop him from getting into Jerusalem. But the one who is our peace had to accomplish his task in Jerusalem so that you and I, we could be assured of that peace. And this is what I want to pass across this morning from Ephesians 2, 14 and 15. The Prince of Peace grants peace to everyone who will submit to him, who will submit to Jesus. The peace of God is not deterred or hindered by the situation you're in. The Prince of Peace, Jesus was going to get into Jerusalem as the Prince of Peace, despite Good Friday coming up in a few days' time. Nothing would hinder the Prince of Peace from getting into Jerusalem. And surrender to the Prince of Peace crumbles the wall of separation and enmity. Ephesians 2.15 defines what peace is. It says this, having abolished in his flesh the enmity so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. So peace with God is the abolishment of the enmity, the wall of separation between you and Jesus. And as Jesus was entering Jerusalem on this Palm Sunday, he was offering that city his peace by abolishing the enmity that sin had created. And I believe that this morning, as we sit and study Ephesians 2, the same peace is being offered to you. Will you accept it or will you reject it? I want to jump back to Ephesians 2.10, which says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are created by Jesus for good works. And significantly, verse 10 tells us that these good works were prepared beforehand. Before we were even created, those good works for us, God had prepared them. Now hold that thought as I go back to Luke 19. Remember, Jesus said to his disciples, the two of them, go into the town, you'll find a colt tied somewhere in the village, lose it and bring it to me. And if anyone asks you why they are losing it, tell them that the Lord has need of it. In the context of Ephesians 2.10, the good works, I think I'm correct if I say that that cult was created in Christ Jesus for good works, in that it would be part of the fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9. Uh, last week, Marel told us that we were in Christ before this world. And I think I'm also safe in saying that that cult was also in Christ before this world, before it had been uh, born in its mother's womb. That cult was predestined to be the one to be part of the fulfillment of the prophecy of Zechariah that was given between 520 and 518, 518 BC. 
Remember the passage you like in Jeremiah 1.5? Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you, I ordained you a prophet to the nations. That cult was not there by accident. Before it was ever formed in its mother's womb, that sounds funny, doesn't it? God had set it apart for Palm Sunday to be part of the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. But one thing had to happen. That cult had to be loosed from its tether in order for it to be taken to Jesus to do its good work. <clears throat> and this is where you come into this story. Jeremiah 1.5 applies to you as well. Before you were born in your mother's womb, God knew you. He predestined you. God knew in the same way as he knew what he do with that cult. He knows what he has planned for you before you are born. But like the cult, what needs to be loosed in your life for you to do the good works in Ephesians 2.10 that we are told? What is it that hinders you from being fully used by God? Is it your image? Now, I, I came up with the word image because I remembered when I was in secondary school, I used to think Christians were the most uncool things I'd ever come across. And I didn't want to look like them. Now, I'm not saying that I was cool. All I'm saying, I didn't want to look as uncool as them. What needs to be loosed in your life? Is it your job that keeps you busy so that you have no time for God? Is it a hobby? Is it a relationship? For the Pharisees, I think what needed to be loosed from their, from their lives was their high titles and their privileged positions. A few years back, I had a discussion with a European, and I'm using the word European because I don't want to name the country. And they told me that the reason Africans need God as desperately as we do is because we have too many problems. That the first world, Europe, has taken care of their problems, so they don't need God. And I asked myself this morning, would Europe need to be loosed from its prosperity, if you can call it that, for them to be used by God. And how about you? Is your prosperity in whatever form in need of being loosed from you so that God can use you? Remember this. God uses those who are unfettered, those who are unloosed. But God will unfetter those he wants to use. He went and untied that cult. Some unfettering had to be done, some unloosing had to be done for that cult to be used by God. Paul, who wrote Ephesians, his unfettering was dramatic. He first had to be struck blind on the road to Emmaus. Jonah, needed to be unfettered in the belly of a whale for God to use him in Nineveh. And so for me, the question I have for you this morning is, which mode of being used by God would you prefer? The easy way or the hard way? And I think a good place to start 
is to ask the Lord to unfetter you from anything that is hindering you being used by him for his good works. And maybe the words of Isaiah 6-8 need to be your response this morning. Isaiah says this, Also, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. Maybe that needs to be your response this morning. Back to Ephesians 2, verse 19 and 22. Paul has stated in verse 19 that we are now fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. And then he adds that we've been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Now we need to remember that the apostles and prophets proclaim the message of God to the people. And it's on this message this word of God that the people lived by and relied on. Coming back to Zechariah 9.9, it says this, The coming king, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the fall of a donkey. Jesus fulfilled the word of God in every aspect. Even his triumphal entry into Jerusalem was a fulfillment of what the prophet had said hundreds of years before. God tells us in Isaiah 55 that his word does not go back void. The apostles and prophets proclaimed his word to his people, to you and I. His word. Who is Jesus? I think we're familiar with John 1. Verse 1 to 2 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And then First John, as John 1, 14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is the chief cornerstone and the foundation that the apostles and prophets were built on. The word of God. The word being Jesus himself. So I want to assume that we recognize the importance of a foundation in any structure. If you get the foundation wrong, the chances of that structure collapsing sooner or later are almost guaranteed. Paul says in Ephesians 2, 20 to 22, that we are built on the foundation of the word, that's through the apostles and prophets, with Jesus, who is the word, being the chief cornerstone, and in whom the whole building, being fitted together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together, for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Look at the cry of Jesus in Luke 19, 41 to 44, during his triumphal entry. Jesus weeps over Jerusalem. Now as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, 
if you had known even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. He's talking about Jerusalem. He was 33 at this point. So that was uh, 33 AD. In 70 AD, 37 years later, Jerusalem was completely destroyed. What do I see here? The prophets had laid a foundation for Jerusalem. And Zechariah in chapter 9, verse 9, didn't even hide his prophecy. You know how prophecies like Daniel you read and you're wondering what's this guy talking about? Zechariah was explicit. He says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Zechariah told them how the Messiah was going to come, riding on a donkey. Palm Sunday, today, the Messiah is riding into town on a what? On a donkey. And yet, even in Luke 19, 37 to 38, the disciples are rejoicing and praising God and saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Even they are not saying their own words. They are quoting from Psalm 118, 26. They were quoting the word of God, Jesus himself. Yet Jerusalem didn't know what was going on because it had laid the wrong foundation. The one in Ephesians 2.15 that refers to the law of the commandments contained in ordinances. And for the last three years, Jesus had been laying the foundation. He'd been telling them, it is me, I am here. But they, represented by the Pharisees, would not see it, would not accept it. When a building's foundation is condemned, it's impossible to dig it up and lay it afresh when the walls are still up. What has to happen is the walls have to be brought down and the building starts from scratch. The foundation is laid afresh. And the middle wall of separation that is referred to in our passage today must be broken. It has to be brought down so that the foundation of the word of God is established and upon which the whole building grows into a holy temple. As Jesus is making his triumphal entry on this Palm Sunday, as he's walking down, coming down, riding down there with the donkey and looking down on us, looking down on you, is he weeping over your life this morning as he did over Jerusalem? Is he examining your life and seeing a life that is not founded on the apostles and prophets with Jesus Christ himself as a cornerstone? Is he seeing a bad foundation that is a danger to the house that you've built and that cannot constitute a holy temple? 
We read in Colossians 1, 21 to 23, and you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled, reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. We all know 1 Corinthians 6, 19 to 20. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have from God and are not your own? For you are bought at a price. This coming Good Friday, that price is what you are bought with. You are bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Paul is saying that by being reconciled to God, we must continue in the faith grounded. That means your foundation. Grounded and steadfast and not moved from the hope of the gospel, which you had, you had it from the apostles and the prophets, and which was preached to every creature under heaven. You and I are part of those creatures. If you've never constructed, if you've never participated in a construction, for you to understand the importance of a foundation, either you go to an expert to tell you, this is how a foundation needs to look like, or go back to school, do engineering, learn how a foundation should be, then come back and start work on your foundation. The foundation of God's word is critical to you and I because only then can we perceive a situation where a bad foundation is being suggested. You may have heard of these guys who test fake currency, how their training goes. They are not trained to know what bad currency is. They are trained to know what good currency is. So that once they have an appreciation of how good currency is supposed to look, the minute they see a fake one, they immediately know this is fake because I know what is good. The foundation that you and I must lay is Jesus, who is the word. He must be our cornerstone. And the cornerstone in first century building was a stone that was laid first and it acted as a marker for the rest of the building. You know, we are living in an age of apostasy where the renunciation of God's word is common. It's rife. So unless you're properly founded, unless you're properly grounded, and that grounding can only be in and on the word of God, you could easily find yourself following heresies because you can't sniff out the lies of the devil in this age. You won't know what is false unless you know what is true. You can only know what is true if it's the word of God. Paul wants the church of Thessalonica in 2 Thessalonians 2 not to be shaken in mind or troubled by those claiming that Jesus Christ had come. And he urges them to let no one deceive them by any means because the coming of the day of the Lord will follow a certain sequence. And he explains that sequence in this passage. And then Paul tells them to stand fast 
and hold on to what they were taught from the scriptures as that is the only foundation that will sustain them in this day and age of apostasy. Isaiah 28.6, we know this uh, verse. Therefore thus says the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone for a foundation, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not act hastily. KVC, what is your foundation? What is our foundation? Can it stand the test of time? I read this statement from one church. It says this, in our day, in the wake of postmodernism, relativism, and pluralism, and the emergence of radical and unorthodox expressions of church, we must remind ourselves that the true church, the only church, is that which is founded and grounded upon the teachings of scripture. If you go to our website, the KBC website, we have 11 beliefs. The first one is this. We, KVC, believe that the Bible is God's word. It is accurate, authoritative, and applicable to our everyday lives. Let me read that again. KVC believes that the Bible is God's word. It is accurate. It is authoritative and applicable to our everyday lives. Do you spend time in God's word? Is God's word your measuring yard, your measuring stick, such that everything that you come across must be sieved through God's word for it to hold true to you? Because God's word is a cornerstone. Worship team, please come up. 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17, which you're all familiar with, says all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Ephesians 2, 10 says you are created for good works, but those good works you are created for are only possible by your being equipped by God's word, Jesus, the cornerstone. Matthew 7, 24, Jesus says this, Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. The true foundation is God's word, who is Jesus. The true foundation is God's word, who is Jesus. And as we move into what many call the Holy Week, will you allow Ephesians 2 to permeate your life so that come Easter weekend, come Friday, you'll have experienced his peace as you make him the cornerstone of everything in your life. Can I ask that each of us goes through this week assessing our lives to see if there's any area that needs to be loosed so that he can use you? Or any area that you've laid a foundation that is everything else but the word of God, but Jesus, and allow him to uproot that foundation and to lay his infallible word 
as a foundation that cannot be shaken. Amen. first uh, stanza says this, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus Christ, my righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. I'm sure you're tempted to sing that song. 
We shall not sing it. We shall not sing it. We shall think it. Please stand. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus Christ, my righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. I'm going to ask the prayer teams to come to the side. The word that I feel the Lord impressing on my heart for us uh, from this passage is the word lose. L-O-O-S-E, lose. That we'd come to a place of allowing God to lose us like he loosed the colt from its tether so that he can use us. Use us individually and use us corporately as KVC. And so I want to ask that you just take a moment and, and, and ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to you if there's anything that needs to be loosed. Anything. Anything that is hindering you from being used by God because he created you for his good works from the beginning of time. And if there's anything that he needs to be loosed, please lay it before him. Allow him to untether you so that he can use you. And I'll ask if there's something you'd like the prayer teams to pray with you, uh, please don't, don't walk away without getting someone to pray with you. And then foundation. The only foundation is Christ, the solid rock. If there's any other foundation that is yours, that you're standing on, it will crumble. It can't stand the test of time. Like Jerusalem, a few years later, it was completely flattened. Allow Christ, allow his word to be your foundation. Let's pray. Father, thank you that your word never goes back void. Thank you, Lord, that even when the one sharing that word does it uh, badly, pathetically, or without conviction, your word in Jeremiah says it never goes back void. So, Father, I thank you that because I've shared your word, it has its place in our midst. Father, I'm praying that you'd lose us from anything that would hinder us from being used by you. And Father, I'm praying that the only foundation that we can rely on, we will rely on, shall be your word, shall be Jesus. And Father, if there's anyone here who does not know you as Lord and Savior, Father, I pray that this morning they would give their heart to you, they would surrender their life to you because, Father, you are the sure foundation. I pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would convict them, that they will come down, Lord, and pray with one of the people standing here waiting to pray with them, that they would surrender their lives to you. And, Father, I thank you that even with Peter, 
who betrayed you. Yet you said that you would form, you would found your church on him and you changed his name. That Lord, you never give up on any of us. That Father, nothing in us, nothing of our weaknesses can hinder you from using us for your kingdom. And so, Father, I want to pray for my brothers and sisters here. If there's anyone who feels that they are the scum of the world, that they are filthy, that they are the bottom, Father, may they know that you are the sure foundation and that, Father, you are willing, you are willing to be that foundation for them, that, Father, you, the Prince of Peace, is not hindered by who we are. You're not hindered by our flesh. You're not hindered by our sin. Father, all you're asking for is a willing heart. And so, Father, I pray that you would give us willing hearts. Father, come in our midst. Father, be our strong foundation. And Lord, as I stand here, as one of the elders, Lord, I want to stand on behalf of KVC and declare that Jesus, you are the foundation for this church. Father, may everything that we are, may everything that we do, Father, may it be founded on you. And Father, forgive us if in any way we have sought to do other than be on your foundation, be on your word. And Jesus being the Lord and master of this church. So, Father, we yield ourselves to you. We thank you for your word. And, Father, I pray that as we go, as we mark the Holy Week, Father, may you be ever-present in our lives this coming week. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Blessings. Go with God. <laughs>